This is the We the People, Our American Story podcast. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every week to hear the remarkable stories of veterans, combat survivors, first responders, and American patriots in their own words. If you are pro-freedom and pro-America, you are in the right place. We the People, Our American Story is the podcast for Americans who fiercely and unapologetically love America. Welcome to another episode of We the People, Our American Story. My guest today is Ben Miller. And as I introduce him, I have to tell all of you that there's a little story behind this. Here in Salt Lake Valley, every year we have a Salt Lake Valley Parade of Homes that I go to. And I don't like going to the small homes. I don't like going to the 3,000 square foot homes. I don't even like going to the 5,000 square foot homes. In fact, I will flip through the magazines once I get it at the first house and I will find all the houses that are like 6,000 square feet or above because I think those are the fun ones to go see. And Ben happened to be at one of these homes that definitely met the requirement. Don't you think, Ben? Yeah, I'd agree with you. I went to this house, which was called the Monaco, correct? Yes. And it was in my neck of the woods, just up the street from me in my little town of Harriman. This house, and correct me if I'm wrong here, and I think this included the casita out back, was a is a whopping 25,792 square feet. To be fair, that's not the finished square footage, but that's basically taking every storage closet, every the sports court, the garage space, all that that type of stuff. But yeah, so it was it was 25,000 plus square foot of of home space. The livable square footage where you would actually sleep or eat would probably be closer to the 15,000 square foot mark. Tiny. Which, yeah, yeah, very small, much much more modest, but uh yeah, it was a, it was a big house. Well, as I was walking through the house in the kitchen on the table in the dining area, there was a poster and Ben happened to be standing right next to it and he explained to me what the poster was about and we got to talking and come to find out that there was a story that Ben was involved in with the poster and that he is a veteran of the National Guard and has over 24 years mm -hmm. of experience in that. And I immediately knew I had to have him on the podcast. Ben is with Anchor. Let's see, you just changed it not too long ago, right? right. Anchor yes. Construction and Design. Yes. He's over marketing and project management. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm the, I'm the managing director, so... Uh, along with my brother, uh, I run the business with him. He's the he's the general contractor, president of the company, kind of lead project manager, where um, I do mostly the the face stuff. So I'll be the contact all the way to contract with new clients, um, things like this, and just developing systems within the company, more efficient ways for our superintendents to do their job better, um, and just systems within the company, things like that. We'll get more into the poster because I definitely want to you to explain why this caught my eye, but that's a little bit down the road. And I like to start from the beginning. So where did you grow up and what was life like for you? So I was born in Salem, Oregon, um, back in 1980. Uh, and most of my early life was spent in the Pacific Northwest. So I 
um, without getting too far into the to the weeds on this, uh, spent a lot of time between Washington, Oregon, California, mostly Oregon. Uh, when I was about five years old, my parents separated and then my mother remarried uh, to someone who owned a local restaurant in this town of Detroit, Oregon, very small town. At the time, it was a, a little bit bigger. Um, we actually had a high school in the town, things like that. And the, the logging industry was quite big back then in Oregon. And my father lived in Utah, worked for Marriott and would kind of fly all over the country and do remodels, renovations on hotels, hotel restaurants, things like that. So I'd actually go travel and visit him quite a bit as a kid. So I would, you know, wherever he was going to be at that point, I'd, I'd fly out and see him for, you know, my week or whatever it was in the summer. Uh, but yeah, I grew up in a small town for the most part. When I was 12, my dad had remarried and uh, there were some things going on uh, in, in Oregon that made it a good time for me to move out and stay with my dad. And that's when I came to Utah, to Provo, Utah. And basically, I split time between Oregon and Utah up until uh, I moved back to Oregon, pretty much, or excuse me, Utah, pretty much full time, my senior year of high school, uh, finished high school, joined the Army, uh, and basically left in October of 1998, and spent all but about three months of that time in the in the Guard. I got out for three whole months and was like, I got to get back in. Um, and then I just retired from the army. Well, was medically retired in May of this this year. Okay, let's take it back a little bit. We know there's you and your brother. Do you have any other siblings? Yeah. So I have. I am. It's 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 a fun. I don't know. Fun is the right word, but it's an interesting uh, family tale, I guess. Um, I have three older step siblings. I have two older half not not step. Excuse me. Two older half sisters and one older half brother. Half brother is Matt. He's the one that I work with, Matt Miller. And then my father um, got divorced from their mother, married my mother, and I was the only child born out of that that wedding. Um, and incidentally, I'm my mother's only child. And then my when my parents divorced, my father got married later on and had another uh, child, a uh, girl, and that's my younger sister. So I'm one of five, um, but I only have half siblings, and I have some step siblings here and there, but uh, yeah, I'm my mom's only kid. And then my brother and I are literally brothers from other mothers. <laughs> your interest in construction, did that come from your dad then? Uh, yeah. To say my interest in construction might be a bit of a reach, <laughs> at least in the <laughs> early days. Um, okay. I was the typical contractor's kid that uh, when my dad, uh, he when he left, left Marriott to start his own residential slash commercial construction company in Provo, Utah. Um, you know, he'd bring me to work and hand me a bucket and he'd say, go clean up trash. I'm going to be meeting with subcontractors and clients for the next three hours. And, you know, I was the kid that grumbled around the the, the frustrated teenager that was picking up trash for way longer than he wanted to. Um, so uh, that eventually turned into doing things a little more complex and picking up trash. But uh, yeah, for for quite a while, it was like, well, this is something I do because my dad is the contractor, not because it was my interest. Um, later on in life, things changed when I came back to work with the company uh, here within the past 10 years. But um, yeah, so that's kind of how I got into it. It's it's my dad's fault. Okay. Do you have military in your family's background? Uh, there is some. My my grandfather uh, had served in World War One. He was one of those oh, guys wow. that... Um, yeah, he had lied about his age. Uh, he was something like 16 or 17 at the time. I don't remember all, quite all the details, but he had lied 
about it and uh you know got into the military when he was was very young uh survived the war and all that um beyond that uh my father uh didn't serve but my um as i was kind of near the more formative years of like my teenage life i had had a uh brother-in-law at the time that was a f-18 pilot and he told me quite a bit about the military i kind of already had my mind made up from a very young age uh, about five or six when I, I can tell you that story some point but um yeah not a lot of military like close in proximity to me growing up um at least as a kid but always had a deep respect for the military and love for all those sort of stuff love going to air shows and things like that when i was a kid so uh yeah you were five or six then when you decided that you might want to go the military route yeah so i i told this story for a number of years and it wasn't really until recently that i actually figured out all the details behind it but i still remember um when I was a kid watching the movie Hell is for Heroes starring Steve McQueen um, and spoiler alert on a it's a few years old. This movie, I think, came out in like the 60s or something. But near the very end of it, um, I, I believe Steve McQueen's character, his name is Reese. Uh, they're storming a, a hill. This is World War Two era. And, it, you know, there's one of these German pillboxes, these big concrete bunkers with a hole in it for the machine gun. It's just, you know, shooting all the guys as they're trying to come up the hill. And Steve's character runs up with his satchel charge, this this big giant brick of explosives, and you know gets up by the thing, throws it into the to the hole, and as he's running away to try and get in the cover, he gets shot. Um, and he's laying there, kind of you know looks like he's mortally wounded, and he's he's staring back up at the the pillbox, and he sees the the charge get thrown out. Um, of the, of the, of the hole in it. So it's like, you know, he's sitting there as he's dying going, well, I, you know, they just threw this thing out. So with his, you know, his last ounce of strength is kind of his dying, his dying breath. He, he gets up, runs up, grabs the satchel charge and throws it right in as it explodes, blows up the bunker, obviously kills him in the process. But I remember watching this as a kid and even at a very young age, understanding what it meant to sacrifice um, and understanding is it, it even still makes me emotional now. Um, just this idea of giving of yourself for your brothers and sisters. Um, cause you know, he was the hero in that moment and he allowed his, his buddies to safely advance up the hill. And from that moment, it was like, okay, I, that, this is the sort of thing I want to do. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do in the military. Um, but I knew I wanted to serve. I knew I wanted to be a part of something bigger than me. And if it required to make the sacrifice, if I, if I needed to. That didn't scare you at five or six that, oh, he died. No, no, I, 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 it's weird to say that I understood why. Um, and I'm not going to sit here and lie and say, like, I, I've never been afraid while deployed or things like that of, of getting hurt or getting killed. But, um, you know, I always had this, I, this concept from a very young age that, um, what it meant to sacrifice. How old were you when you joined? And was it the regular army that you joined in at the time? Uh, I was 18 when I joined. Um, so I was fresh out of high school. And I'd been talking to recruiters for a while, and I initially was very interested in the Marine Corps. I'm one of those people that the, the commercials worked for me. Um, you know, uh, the few, the proud, the Marines, those those commercials where they're fighting the monsters with a sword and yeah, the uniforms, the swords and the commercials. It was like, you got me, I'm in. Um, you know, I, I kind of had wanted to be a pilot, but I was, you know, I had my ADHD issues in school and just had really had a hard time focusing. So getting a, becoming a commissioned officer, at least at a young age, was just not in the cards for me. But, um, but then I learned about the airborne. 
Um, I was working at the local movie theater when I was, uh, I think my senior year of high school. And uh, one of the managers was in the Army National Guard. And um, he was telling me about things. And we even, like, I found out that the Marines had a reserve component, which I had no idea. <laughs> and his thing was like, why do you think they never show commercials for the Marine Reserve? I'm like, well, I don't know. It's like, yeah, because they don't want people in it. They want people in the actual Marines. And at the time, I was very interested in, um, I was I was strongly considering serving an uh, LDS mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or the Mormon Church. Um, so the thought of joining after high school and being able to serve as a missionary was something that was that was interesting to me. Uh, so I was still thinking about that. I'm like, well, maybe I can be a Marine Reserve. But um, I don't remember exactly how it happened. But he I believe he told me about a book called The Airborne. And it was a Tom Clancy book. Uh, it was sort of autobiographical, like a documentary, if you will, about the Airborne and and a book kind of at the same time. And honestly, I don't think I ever read the actual uh, fictionalized novel part of the book, but I read through the the documentary part, if you will, and just got sold on the Airborne and what it meant to be a paratrooper in the U.S. Army or just a paratrooper in the U.S. military in general, because a lot of the other branches actually go through the uh, Army Airborne School. And I remember talking to the Marine recruiter about the Airborne because because this idea had just you know sunk its teeth into me and said, no, we don't we don't do that at all. I'm like, oh, okay, well. I guess I'll go talk to the army. And I think I was, I don't remember if I was already meeting with the army reserve recruiter at the same time, but uh, he had come back to my house uh, for a follow-up visit. And I asked him about that. And he said, no, we don't do airborne in the, the army reserve. I'm like, okay, well, that's what I want to do. So thanks for your time. <laughs> okay. And then I, I'm one of these like recruiters dream. Um, there's the, a mall here and locally in the town I, I lived in and, I knew there was a recruiting station. It was for the Army National Guard. And I, I went to the recruiting station and, and walked through the doors. And there's these two recruiters sitting in their desk. And, you know, how can we help you? I'm like, I want to jump out of airplanes. Is that something you guys can help me do? And they're like, I'll show you where to sign up. So, yeah, it was pretty easy from there. It was like, okay, well, you're to, to be a paratrooper in the in the National Guard. Uh, at that time, the choice, especially within the state of Utah, was to be a member of the 19th Special Forces Group. And it was just, okay, cool. Then that's what I'll do. And I got to learn a little bit about special operations, what Green Berets are, what they do. Um, you know, you have an idea of what these things are before you join the military, but but not all that clear. The idea of being a Green Beret was really appealing to me, but the thought of going away for a year to two years of training wasn't something that I um, I was interested in at that time. That wasn't my priority. So I ended up looking into a few different jobs and uh, anyways, ended up just uh, joining through through that. And getting into the 19th Special Forces Group, and I spent 20 years-ish in that unit before uh, transferring out near the end and finishing up and being medically retired. You had several deployments. Can you walk us through those? Sure. I had I had two that were like full deployment deployments. The first one was in 2002. Whoa, the heat uh, of it. Well, what's interesting is uh, it was like I had just got done serving. Well, not just got done. It was about nine months after I got home from serving my my two-year LDS mission. Uh, September 11 actually happened while I was on my mission. And I was actually in New Jersey um, when that happened. And there were people in the congregations I was attending that had seen it happen. One, one gentleman uh, was actually in the building, made it out, which is a wild story by itself. But um so I was I was right there in that part of the world when uh, September 11th happened. I was a member of the Guard already. 
So I was thinking, well, am I going to, you know, do I go home? Do I, do I, do I need to leave my mission and go on a, another, another type of mission, which I, I, I was ready to do. Honestly, I think I was bugging the, uh, they call him a mission president. The guy that's kind of in charge of your mission was probably bugging him like, Hey, I need to call my unit and make sure they don't need me. And they're like, we have their information. We've talked to them. You're okay. Just keep doing what you're doing. We'll let you know if they need you. But anyways, fast forward nine months after I got home, uh, I got deployed to Kosovo, which is over in Eastern Europe and the former Republic of Yugoslavia, if uh, you're old and remember what Yugoslavia was. And I remember being there in 2002 to 2003. I was there for about six months. And when we invaded Iraq, I was watching it on TV with all of my buddies going like, and this, this probably sounds weird to anyone who didn't serve, but you're watching it happen on TV thinking, I'm in the wrong place. Like I knew it. You the, wanted the game, to be there, didn't you? Yeah. Oh, that's so yeah, crazy that I hear that from all of you. Yeah, I it's it's hard to explain, but you you know, it, it's like being a professional athlete and going to practice day after day and like training to to play play your role and play this part. And then when the time comes that the game starts, you're not in the game and you just oh, want to play. I want to see the field. I want to, you know, whatever. I was training there. Again, I was deployed with special operations. I was with a lot of uh, elite level people, you know, from SEALs and, and on and on and on uh, doing cool guy stuff. And I was at the time I was training to be a Green Beret. And I'm like, man, I, this is what I want to do. I want to be over there. I want to fight. Um, but instead I'm, I'm here in Kosovo, which was a great experience by itself, but it's a weird feeling to watch it unfold on TV and be mad that you're not there while it's happening. That's what sets you apart from the rest of us, because I would have no desire to be a part of that. Well, and, and in fairness, I was single at the time I was 22. I wouldn't be married for another few years. Um, so the time it was the whole, what do I have to lose? And, you know, who would be sad if I were to get killed was a lot different than it was during my second deployment when I was married and had a couple of kids. Uh, I had a very different mindset then, but yeah, you know, this is, this is what you've trained to do. This is what you're passionate about. Again, this was four years after I had joined the military. So it was, I was still very energetic. You know, you get to the end of 20 plus years, you're kind of like, ah, I hope I don't get sent anywhere. <laughs> But as a kid, you're just, you're full of uh, spit and vinegar, as they say. A few years go by then from what you are telling me before your second deployment, which was where? Uh, my second deployment was in 2010. It was uh, to Iraq. I was there, um, I think we left about 2010, two we were there 2010, 2011. And we were there as the mission changed from Operation Iraqi Freedom to Operation New Dawn. And, you know, we still were the, the kind of the, the running joke for a lot of us who were there was we remember sitting in the chow hall watching CNN or, or whatever news channel was on. And President Obama was announcing to the American public that there were no more combat troops in Iraq. And we're looking around each other <laughs> like, are, are we not in Iraq? Are we, are we not combat troops? Is that what he mean? You know, it was, I actually had people uh, accuse me of lying when I came home. I had said, oh, I was in Iraq for the past year or, or, you know, I think I came home for even a couple of weeks and was you know, playing some online games. And I think I'd mentioned something like, and the guy was like, oh, you're lying. We don't have any troops in I Iraq. Like they're all gone. I'm like, mm. no, that's what the media wants you to think, or at least what the president's saying. But yeah, we were very much there. But, um, but anyways, at the time I had been married for about four or five years. 
and I had a, a son and a daughter. My daughter, my the the youngest, she was 11 months when I deployed. I, I was able to come home about five months into the deployment, like around Thanksgiving uh, for my little two-week leave. But um, So I did get to see them then. But it was definitely weird to leave a, an 11-month-old daughter um, and then come home to a, to a two-year-old. A lot of changes happened around that time. Uh, I was lucky enough to be in a position where we had Skype. Um, you know, now it's Zoom, right, or whatever. Uh, at the time, Skype was like pretty much the only option. So I, I get to Skype quite a bit. So my kids at least knew my face through the computer screen. Uh, so they knew what I looked like. And I got to sort of watch my kids grow up across the computer screen. So it was uh, all things considered compared to what people had to go through years and years before, you know, World War II and Vietnam. It's like I had it pretty easy, relatively speaking. But anyway, spent a year out there. That's quite a different deployment for you then versus the first time where you have something or some people to definitely come home to. So are you more careful? Yeah, I still traveled around quite a bit. Uh, at the time, I was serving as a chaplain's assistant. Um, the Army loves to change its names. Currently, it's a religious affairs specialist. But anyways, chaplain's assistant. So essentially like a, a bodyguard to the chaplain slash um, I'd always compare like if you've ever seen a Hollywood actor and they have their personal assistant running around behind them, getting them coffee and arranging their flights, it's kind of what you do for the chaplain. And then when you do travel places, uh, your primary function is is security for the chaplain because they're they're non-combatants, not um, allowed to carry a firearm or weapons oh, okay. or anything like that. Yeah. So it's your responsibility to make sure that if uh, in combat situations, if those do arise, that you're able to to care for the chaplain, just kind of like a secret service agent would for like a president or something like that. So that's kind of how that worked. But mostly I, I arrange flights to different places. We travel all over the country to visit soldiers in different areas, especially soldiers within our unit um, that had kind of been spread all through Iraq. So where a lot of guys never left the, never left the FOB, never left the, I was on JBB, Joint Base Balad, never left uh, the base. I was leaving quite often. So that was interesting. Got to see, you know, everywhere from Fallujah to kind of all over the place. Was there any fighting or any skirmishes during that time whatsoever? Yeah, there was still stuff going on. It was a lot less direct combat. Like we didn't have, you know, the tanks weren't rolling out and assaulting buildings in the in the streets or anything like that. Um, but there were still several missions going on constantly. Um, and, you know, we at Joint Base Balad, we would come on under fairly regular mortar or rocket attacks. Um, nothing terrible, nothing near what you're seeing like in days like these with what's going on in Israel. Mm -hmm. um, but the whole Iron Dome thing that they have in in Israel, we had a similar type system out there um, where they'd have these, uh, these weapon systems that would shoot down incoming rockets or mortars or things like that. Um, and the very first time, of course, that happens. It's, it's quite dramatic when you'd You've never heard one of these these weapon systems fire. But yeah, so that would happen fairly often. Um, but while I was there, uh, we had a very small number of casualties. Um, I think uh, probably less than five fatalities in the entire year that I was there, which of course is still too many. But um, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't nearly as intense as it had been in years past and compared to what a lot of other people have gone through. As the chaplain's quote, bodyguard, do you have the chance to speak to people who are dealing with different problems or are you in the background? Uh, both. So the one of the reasons I decided to do that job 
prior to that, I was uh, I was in MI. I was in military intelligence. I was a, a topographical analyst. So my job at the time was basically mapping, making maps. So it'd be something along the lines of like, hey, we are here. We want to go here. What are some things we need to know about the terrain, roads, mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff? So I transitioned from that into the chaplain system thing after essentially being exposed to a highlight reel, if you will, of a uh, of a, a terrorist sniper in Iraq. And I remember watching this. I, it was Iraq. Um, this guy shooting American soldiers and thinking like, you know, really kind of having this watershed moment, so to speak, where I thought, you know, who's there for these guys' buddies? Who's there to take care of the people kind of left behind? And because, you know, you, you watch something like that happen, and you know, as a soldier, you're like, that's my brother, or that's my sister getting shot. And it pisses you off. And, you know, it just makes you mad. And you think about the people left behind. And, you know, I thought, I, I want to be there for the people that are having to work through these sort of things or these these struggles. And, and that was kind of how I transitioned to the chaplain assistant thing. Now, and, and to be fair, to give full context, a chaplain assistant is not a counselor. They they hammer that with you um, while you're going through school. You're not a counselor. You're not there to advise, but you are able to encourage, support, uplift, things like that, where it's the chaplain's job or army psychologist's job to deal with all the really in-depth like mental health type stuff or, or those issues. But all that being said, I did have numerous opportunities, countless opportunities to sit across from a soldier in my in my office there in Iraq that was struggling with everything from um, marital issues back home to conflicts with their supervisors while they're in country to y- you name it, just all sorts of struggles. And some guys um, would come in and they they because I wasn't always like in the chaplaincy or the chaplain corps, I wasn't always this religious guy. I think some soldiers, uh, especially ones I had served with, because I'd also been a mechanic previous to being in the MI, some people knew me through there and were like kind of people that wouldn't normally want to approach a chaplain would be willing to talk to me because he was a religious guy. I was the bodyguard to the religious guy. Plus, they knew who I was. Right. So a lot of people that wouldn't speak to the chaplain would speak to me. And um, I always had to toe the line between being a counselor and being a, a support system. But yeah, it was. I, I found it extremely fulfilling on my end. Um, there are still people I talk to, like even this last month, that like, oh, they, you know, this person was saying, hey, you know, I really appreciated the time I got to speak with you in in Iraq, and you know, meet you there in the chapel and all that. And then even things like we would almost have like we'd have game nights in the chapel. I'm a I'm a big nerd, a big video game nerd. Um, hence, like the Xbox behind me and me being on my blowing headset and stuff here at my computer, but we would do, uh, I, I, we had this big conference room in our chapel, not in the chapel, but in like the overflow where all the offices were, we had a conference room. We had kind of like a living room, like hangout room. And we had all these big TVs that no one was using. So I'm like, Hey guys, bring your Xboxes. Let's have like halo tournament night. So like every Wednesday night, we would get sometimes 20 or so soldiers in there. Usually the junior enlisted guys, would come in and we'd play video games together. And for a lot of these guys, the only time they ever came into the to the chapel was just to play video games. You know, it was neat because it gave them an opportunity to be around their peers where maybe they would just go to work, sit at their desk, do whatever their job was and go back to their room. Um, so it was it was it was a great experience. And yeah, it was it was wonderful to be able to work with soldiers. And I kind of carried that on when I came through, came home to do some other things for the military. Did you find there were some issues that were more prevalent for them than others, or was it all over the board? Uh, there were definitely some issues that were more prevalent. Um, we did have the soldiers who 
really would struggle with the the realities of being in a war zone, even if it was to some, okay, it, this is that whole, like, it's subjective. So to sit there and say, like, I or you can't have PTSD because you weren't in a foxhole in Normandy or Bastogne and you didn't watch your buddy's legs get blown up. Like, so you don't have the right to to struggle emotionally. Like, that's not the reality of the situation. Everything is subjective. So in Iraq, even though we were, you know, safely on, on the FOB, uh, for a lot of people, the stress of being in a combat zone surrounded by people that really wished you death and would fire rockets and mortars at you, that was a lot to take for for some people. And I know a lot of people really struggled with that. You know, and I know it's hard for some people to to sit and like be sympathetic towards people like that um, when they're sitting there kicking in doors and watching their friends get shot or having to shoot people. But we did have guys that struggled with that sort of stuff, um, that struggled with the separation from the things they had known their whole lives. Um, like even when I had, you know, rewinding, even when I had gone back to serving as an LDS missionary, I, I was in America, but I was on the other side of the country. There were guys who had come out to their missions that this is the first time they'd ever been away from home. I just didn't have the resilience and the coping skills to know how to function outside of their comfort zone. And it was just, it was too much of a stressor. I mean, you see this like, yeah. You know, kind of one of my favorite examples is um, if you've ever had like something with uh, boiling hot water, you know, something with boiling hot water and then you have like a cold cup or glass or bowl or something that's been exposed to these cold temperatures, you pour that boiling hot water in it. And despite the fact that this could probably handle that boiling hot water in other times and other situations, coming from where it was to what it's being exposed to, it cracks and breaks. And if we're not, if soldiers or people are not conditioned to be in the situations they're in properly, they're going to crack and break. Um, So I did deal with a fair amount of that. Generally speaking, uh, most of the struggles uh, I saw while I was there were marital issue related, where like anything, if you leave an already uh, difficult relationship and then just separate from that person for a year, where there's maybe not some of the things that had tied you together or kept you together, uh, having that that disconnect happen really was a make or break for a lot of couples. And I, I can even speak for myself that uh, there were struggles on my end, but we were able to find certain things to to grow and come through that. But, but yeah, well, so think, it was kind of all over the board. I think, Ben, that is difficult for both people. The person that's at home, they're fighting their own war, trying to keep the house, the kids, everything in order. And then the other person is in a faraway land trying to do his or her duty. They both have different things that are their first priorities. And it's hard because there's probably some resentment from both. Like maybe each of them do not feel like they're being supported by the other one as best as they can. That's Mm -hmm. hard for both. Yeah, and it's I know it's hard for the service member, just speaking as as the one that was, uh, you know, I only have my experience of this, right? To be sitting there thinking like, you know, your spouse is is writing you an email or when you do get the chance to talk to her, um, they want to complain about a bill or some neighbor who had said something rude or someone at church that did this thing in passing said something and you're like, um, a rocket landed, (laughs) you know, next block, a block away from me yesterday. Uh, the sirens are going off right now. I, you know, I could die right now. I, I don't know. So it's it's sometimes hard to be sympathetic when you feel like the situation you're in is so much more extreme. But but again, that's just that understanding that concept of of how things are relative 
Um, it's subjective. And with where they are, they're going through it in their own way um, with what they're used to and where you're going through something very different. So it, it can be very difficult to uh, to connect with each other. Actually, my, my wife and I had some really silly things that we did to to make that connection. But regardless, the point is, yeah, it can be hard to uh, stay connected when you're very, very much disconnected by what you're experiencing on a day-to-day basis. You had to medically retire. If you did not medically retire, would you still be involved? Yes. My medical issues, while not as extreme as a, a lot of people, um, started about five, six years ago to the point where they started to affect like my ability to take fitness tests and, and things like that, mm-hmm. where I struggled to maintain the level of fitness I had always um, when I was younger and, you know, like everybody, you get older, it's not like you can just roll out of bed and pass your, your fitness tests, which was like, you know, the, the joke in the national guard is like, yeah, I do PT twice a year for my biannual fitness tests, <laughs> you know, and when you're 21, you can roll out of bed and run two miles within the, the, the <sighs> lot of time frame and do just enough push ups that you pass. That's the standard that you want to live. Of course, uh, there's a lot of people obviously out there who don't like that standard, who want to perform above and beyond, but uh, as you age, that's not quite um, as realistic as it once was. So, but for, for me, once um, I couldn't carry heavy loads, or I started to like, I, I if I knew that I was going to struggle to throw my buddy over my shoulders and carry him out of a combat zone, I started to look at myself as a liability. I started to look at myself differently, which I know a lot of veterans struggle with that change of identity. Mm-hmm. Um, so while separating has been difficult for me, very difficult for me, um, it's also something that I'm not, I'm not who I was. And I felt like I personally, and I, and I, this may not be the right way to look at it, but I felt like I, what I had to offer wasn't what the army needed anymore. And then it was less than my, than my peers deserved. So, I, I mean, sure, I could still do this or that or teach or whatever, but it was like, if your primary function is a soul, as a soldier, as a shooter, you know, combat, combat soldier. And if I can't do that, for me, uh, my sense of worth was uh, diminished. So when it came time for all these things to, to, you know, the recommendation for medical discharge came up, you know, they're like, well, do you want to dispute this? And I'm like, well, not really, because I don't think that I deserve to, to keep doing my job anymore. You know, there were other factors in it as well, but that was for me, one of the the mental and emotional struggles that I went through, which made separating feel like, okay, it, just, it feels like this is the right time. And yeah, it, it made it more feasible. But yeah, to your point, if I hadn't gone through what I had gone through, or I hadn't been dealing with the issues I was, I was one of those those people who would have been like, I looked at the old guys that were like 30, 40 years. I'm like, that's who I want to be. I want to get, you know, rolled out of here in my wheelchair someday. But um, anyway, so. Was yeah. not in the cards. What nope. were some lessons that you learned from the military? Oh, how much time do you have? Um, geez, what didn't I learn? I've already talked about how I, I served an LDS mission and obviously I married. And I, I just tell people that for me, it was the three M's in my life that made the most difference. It was uh, military mission and marriage um, that basically taught me how to grow up because I was I was the kid that in high school, um, I, I really struggled with school, um, barely made it through high school, barely ended up with a diploma really struggled struggled as a as a kid to do the basic things that your parents would ask you know keeping your room clean doing your chores just all all these sort of things that you know I, I wasn't a bad kid going out and you know doing crimes or things like that but i just was 
Uh, and I think, you know, it's those those ADHD type issues that make it so a parent struggle. I mean, I'm dealing with it right now with my own kids, trying to figure out how I can best help them. But it's it's a different um, reality when you go to basic training and everyone else is getting smoked or, be, you know, made to do push-ups and do all these things because you screwed up. Mm-hmm. So when your failings affect everyone around you, you start to understand very vividly that the world is is a lot bigger than you and your choices, your actions or your inaction has a much more visual or, or tangible effect on people around you. Because as a kid um, and as an adult, you, you see this, uh, a parent, you see this, that the choices my children make, they have a, they can have a negative impact on me emotionally, right? I'm like, well, am I failing my kids? You know, why are they struggling? What can I do better? But so much of that is behind closed doors, right? You know, watch your parents sitting there like struggle emotionally internally. But when you're watching your, your peers, again, having to suffer because you failed the task or you weren't on time, you're, you're seeing it happen. And, you know, assuming you have any sort of compassion or empathy for people, you're like, well, that sucks. I don't want to be the reason that they're suffering. And that, and that just carries on. And just this idea of like learning how to survive or thrive really within a structured environment where a lot of people who, um, I think a lot of people who joined the military and I've heard, I've seen a lot of the studies about this almost uh, because so many of us, especially people who join um, professions like, you know, the Rangers or the infantry, airborne special operations are almost not necessarily high functioning autism type thing, but like they have these ADD or ADHD things where they need this, like, I need an engaging environment that keeps me focused. Um, and I need a structure where I just can, you know, I can put my blinders on and go, this is what I'm doing and focus in and just be awesome at that thing. Incidentally, it's probably a reason why a lot of guys who are in special operations, once they move into office roles where they're not direct action, hate their lives so yeah. bad because it's like, well, I used to do all this fun stuff that was motivated me and now I'm a clerk and I hate this. So having a structured environment, especially, you know, when you first joined at a young age, like basic training was awesome. I loved it. It was hard and it sucked in moments, but it was like, if you had known me in high school versus who I was in basic training, it was like, you wouldn't have recognized me because it was an environment that I flourished in, I thrived in, and, and I really loved. I mean, I all through my initial entry training, I just loved doing what I did. I loved the structure. I loved marching. I, you know, I loved all this stuff. Um, so it was it was great for me. You mentioned that when you had to leave, that it was very difficult for you. Do you or did you suffer from any PTSD? And it might, and as you explained already, it doesn't have to be that you were in the heat of the battle with people shooting directly at you and you're watching somebody get blown up. Was that anything that has affected you or does affect you? Uh, yeah, to an extent. And again, like I'm saying, um, nothing near what um, uh, so many of my peers have, have experienced. Um, but I think everyone who deploys uh, to a, a combat zone comes home with some types of scars or, you know, little neuroses or idiosyncrasies or things like that, where um, yeah, you're, you're, you're changed one way or the other, you're changed. Um, and and it, it seems silly, but some of the little things where like even where I, the way we would do mostly night operations. So like we would sleep. You know, basically, I wouldn't show up to work until noon because we'd go to bed at like two in the morning or whatever around that time, um, where a lot of the other 
uh, units were doing day operations and I was by range and at an airstrip and things like that. So while I was deployed, I started sleeping with uh, earbuds in um, or like just headphones on listening to books at night. And it's been 12 years, but I still can't sleep at night without putting in headphones and putting on a book. It's not like some, again, it seems like such a small thing compared to what other people go through, but like I'll have panic attacks. Like I would drive to Walmart at two in the morning and go buy a set of earbuds if I couldn't find mine or if mine broke. Um, like that's the level of like, cause I just don't know how to sleep anymore without it. Cause that's, again, that's what I did. Um, when you're hearing explosions and gunshots and all these yeah. other things that happen and jets taking off, it's kind of how you cope. Um, but then even just the small things like being in environments where you don't know the people or crowds where you don't trust, you know, your loud noises again, when you're having rockets land or these, these, uh, you know, well, these... it's because too, in the military, you're taught to be, vigilant mm-hmm. so how can you come home and not carry that with you and yeah be like everywhere you know sit where you can see the door is that one of your things or do you not have to do that uh i don't have to do it but i like to do it i prefer okay. to do it and if anything i try and tell myself i don't need to you know it's like just like you're fine this is okay but even then sometimes like if i don't i know a lot of veterans will have an everyday carry you know they'll, they'll carry with them and times when i don't i feel like i'm failing the people around me hmm. it's like i didn't bring my my sidearm with me so um if something did happen i would be letting these people down which sounds strange maybe but um little things like that and just anywhere where you can't you don't know or trust the people that surround you um you know when you're inside of the the fob when you're inside and around you're you're your buddies, you know, you can trust these people in general. And then the people on the outside are people you can't trust. So um, I think a lot of veterans who've served struggle going into environments where they don't know, don't trust large crowds, things like that, where they can't control things. There's no, not, not structure in a way they would like. So those are the sort of things where I don't do as well. Like we just went to a concert in Vegas a couple of weeks ago and I hate that sort of stuff, especially like the open air things where, you know, people can just shove through you and it's like, Anyway, so there's little things like that, but nothing, nothing major, major that I feel like really negatively affects me on a, on a day-to-day basis. All right. Well, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Robert Card. Mm-hmm. Um, because you are a veteran, you know, the issues that veterans have, and especially too, since you worked with a chaplain, and I know this is only your opinion, but I want to read you a few things about him. And I'm curious if maybe you can add something about maybe what we need to do better for veterans and what went, what went wrong here. So Robert Card was a 40-year-old Army reservist, and he is the one that did that horrific, massive shooting in Maine a few weeks back. And it's interesting, Ben, because I was looking up some of the different things that had happened before. And there were warning signs there. So in July, he was with an Army Reserve training exercise. He was at Army Reserve training exercise. He voiced that he wanted to inflict harm on the facility there and his fellow soldiers. So that was in July. So he was committed for two weeks to a mental health facility and then released. And then we go to September where he made threats against the base and fellow soldiers. 
So some warning went out and they couldn't locate him. And I'm guessing then what happened, happened. What is wrong with this picture? What is going on with veterans? What do we need to do? And the interesting thing too is that I found uh, fascinating is I think from what I understand, he had a pedophile OCD where he wasn't a pedophile, but he heard voices telling him that he was and that everybody was thinking he was a pedophile. So he was always like, what, what are people saying about me? And these voices would tell him to hurt the ones that were talking about him. Yeah. And if I remember correctly, he the, the target he chose wasn't like a gym or something like a fitness center. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think, I mean, obviously there's so many variables in a situation like this and you, you have no idea what's going on in the head of someone that's going through this. Uh, what's interesting to me is just to, 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 to understand and, and to have seen that, um, these are, it's that whole slippery slope concept, right? That people don't just wake up one day and decide they're going to become a mass shooter. There's things that happen, you know, whether it's being a mass shooter or a murderer or a rapist or any of these sort of things, like you don't just wake up and become this, that there's these signs that these things, these triggers that happen along the way. Um, I mean, even in my own experience, I, I've I won't go into it, but in too much depth, but there's some very dear friends who um, went through a, a series of events that led to uh, certain behaviors that uh, were out of character for them, 100%. Um, but it was because they had been exposed to certain variables. I always, I always like to think that um, every person is a math equation in life. Um, and everything that happens to you is just another component of a variable of a math problem that results in the sum of who you are at any given moment. And no matter how, like, let's say you're a positive number, no matter how good things are going, there could be one massive trigger that happens right there near the end and it flips your world upside down. And then, you know, uh, you, you, you lose it. Um, I think probably the biggest problem, especially at least for veterans, because th this is like, there's so many other factors about why something like this would happen. Um, and I'll just very briefly point out the fact that it was in a gun-free facility. Uh, you know, the firearm laws in this country, I won't get into it, but absolutely do not agree with making soft targets. Even as a military person, you're trained, like be a hard target. And if you're going to, you're going to attack the enemy, you attack them where they're the most vulnerable. If it's a fair fight, you're in the wrong fight. Unfortunately, tactically speaking, this person was making all the correct decisions as someone who wanted to inflict the mass most amount of pain which is why our schools are becoming targets our gyms our clubs things like that it's like anyways but that's a whole nother thing but for the individual soldier who's going through this and i, and I think about this a lot because and i tell younger soldiers especially with what i do or, or what i did for the military is to the army as a whole you're a number like you literally are a number and the army views you as such. They don't look at you as the, uh, again, that that unique math equation of who you are, what you bring, uh, all your skill sets, things like that. Um, even in my own personal experience, as I was nearing the end of my time in the military, I was getting close to regular retiring. And to, to make a long story short, um, I was sort of unceremoniously moved out of my unit that had been my home for 20 years by someone at the state level uh, without talking to me, asking me like, hey, here's what's going on. Have you thought about this? If you don't do these things, we, we may have to take this action. Uh, ultimately, I, I turned down a promotion. Um, so as a reward for turning the promotion down, I was kicked out of my unit. Nice. You know, which sounds funny, but it's like, well, you know, 
I was happy where I was. I felt like I had a mission and I was doing something good where I was. And to be rewarded, I was removed from the unit. And it just so happened that it, it literally happened the week that my hometown in, in Oregon had burnt to the ground because of the, uh, the the wildfires that were happening in Oregon a few years ago. So like the restaurant that my family owned and one of the homes that we had lived in as a kid had burnt to the ground. So like my yeah. my childhood was was in ashes. And then suddenly here I am being kicked out of my 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 home in the military since I was 18 because the military wheel of progress keeps moving forward and doesn't stop to consider the individual soldier, which is why it's so much more important that the soldiers and service members on the individual like company platoon squad level is aware of what's going on and their voices are able to be heard because the army or the military doesn't care. Mm. The government doesn't care because it can't. It, it's too big to care about the individual. But at the the lower the levels go, service members have to understand uh, the responsibility that they have to circumvent the impartial nature of the military industrial complex as a whole, the you know military machine as a whole. Where if uh, if a squad leader is seeing, hey, uh, you know, Ben is having these issues, we need to figure out a way to get him help, and not just go send him to talk to the army doc, and then forget about it because it's over and done with. I've thought about this a lot. Um, and I think one of the biggest reasons things like this happen, uh, one, again, like I've said about the lack of individual focus and like catering to like working with ind people's individual concerns because it takes time and money. Um, and then two, that soldiers may feel, especially those that come home who have situations like this, whether they're killing themselves or other people, they have no purpose. Yeah. Uh, the biggest struggle that I came, I experienced when I came home from my deployment and then even now leaving the army is who am I and what's my mission? Um, and for people who've been in the military for a little while, the idea of like knowing, uh, you know, receiving the mission and operating on them or taking action on the mission, if you don't have those and you're sitting around wondering what to do, you start mm -hmm. of, and, and I saw this in Iraq and some of these guys, these team guys would tell me that when there was enemies outside of the perimeter that they could shoot at or, or worry about, that was what took up their focus. But when the missions dried up and the and the military or the government started saying, okay, you can't go on missions, instead of having their guns pointed out at the adversary, they started turning them inside on each other, looking for right. flaws and faults. Even if that's not an option, where do you turn your weapon then? You turn it in on yourself and start yeah. to create issues, drama, stresses, things like that. And then that can somehow manifest into going like, so part of me almost wonders if he chose a fitness facility because maybe he had PT issues or something, you know, his physical fitness and he resented that sort of thing. And, you know, all these sort of these struggles, but ultimately I think it's a lack of follow-up care. Uh, the lack of programs or giving soldiers uh, either currently serving, especially like reservists who may be deployed or separating veterans, a mission uh, accountability. I, I know for me with what I, what I go through on, on, on a personal basis with my mental health stuff is, Knowing I have appointments uh, during the day is one of the best things that gets me out of bed, is one of the things that keeps me looking forward to tomorrow, uh, to next week, knowing that people are counting on me or relying on me. And if you find yourself in a situation where that it doesn't exist, you know, yeah. what, what do you do? I know anchors are very meaningful to you. Why is that? And what do anchors mean to you? Um, obviously, yes, I'm wearing my, my anchor shirt for the construction company. And I think, you know, you can tie this back in with just about everything we've talked about today, everything from the, you know, the mass shooting to 
surviving deployments to why you would even join the military in the first place. And this the anchor thing kind of came up for me several years ago when I was kind of at a, a scout camp and we had um, rappelled down a rock face and we were talking with the, the with the boys at the end of the night. And one of the young men talked about how one of the reasons that they were able to climb on that specific wall was it was this this rock face, but it had like a crack down the middle of it. And because that crack was there, the the guys who set up the, the rappel line were able to put these little anchors into the wall there and it allowed other people to come down. And the initial analogy was, and kind of with the, the one I initially ran with was this idea of you having cracks or flaws in your life or you being imperfect. Um, it's not a disadvantage the way you would look at it because another person may be able to anchor onto what you have gone through because you have those cracks in your life. And because you have those cracks, because you've made those mistakes. And as a, if you're a parent, you, you understand this. You're like, I have gone through these things. Let me teach you, you know, from my own cracks and my issues where you can anchor things and anchor your knowledge or your, your, uh, yourself to, to be safe. Um, and of course, and then that just kind of flowed into the idea of if you've ever watched someone climbing with a harness and having anchors in, and they drop or they slip. Yeah, they'll fall. And yeah, they'll have this like shock of when the, the rope catches them. But the, that anchor in that wall is the only thing that keeps them from dying. And speaking for myself, I know I know for a fact, if I didn't have the anchors I have in my life, I would, I would be dead um, by my own hand. Anchors uh, are something that not only do they keep people alive and keep people uh steady and i you know i i'm big into the analogies it's kind of my thing uh i get teased about it for my wife and my it must be my, that my, nerdy my, part of you <laughs> yeah i guess right well there was some other teacher back in the day that that used a lot of analogies or parables that was pretty good so i figure if, if i'm gonna do that that's okay um you've got some big footsteps to follow yeah right so if i'm trying to be like like that guy i guess i'm doing okay um <laughs> or at least whatever anyways so um if you ever think of like why do ships drop anchor and typically they do it to remain stable, to remain steady and not let the currents, the tides, the winds, whatever it is, blow them around to into harm's way. Um, and I know that me having my anchors in my life, like my kids are one of my anchors, uh, my wife, uh, my job, uh, the military, you know, being in the military at the time was was one of those anchors, knowing that, uh, you know, I had to be at drill. I had to make sure I I had responsibility of soldiers that, that maybe looked up to me or lessons I was going to teach that were something that, you know, people that were counting on me. So I couldn't let myself drift because I needed to be there for those people. And uh, anyway, so that's become huge for me. And it's something that I've tried to promote Um in my opportunities to teach is like, Hey, you got to look for anchors. And, and to, to take it even a step back when I, when I was a leadership trainer, we would teach land navigation and in land navigation, the concept is like you have a map and a compass and you're supposed to, you know, get from a to B. Right. And depending on the terrain around you, you can do something called terrain association. And in terrain association, it's very important that you pick a fixed point and a fixed point might be something like, a mountain peak or like a uh, uh, um, like a satellite dish on, or a, a tower or something. And the tower or the mountain does not move. 
But if you pick a cloud in the sky or you pick an airplane flying through the sky as your fixed point of reference, if you follow that cloud and it's a windy day, that cloud is going to move and you think you're going in a straight line, but you're going to start veering off towards whatever that is because it's not a fixed immovable point where if you're walking towards a mountaintop, that doesn't change. Um, and in our life, if we pick anchors that are not fixed points, uh, it can lead us it can lead us astray. And that's where things where like a, a boyfriend or a girlfriend or yeah, sports team or or anything that's finite that 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 can go away at a, at a moment's notice can can be can be an issue. And even then, like let's say you pick a marriage um, as your anchor, or if you pick your military service as an anchor. Okay, what happens if you're medically retired? What happens if you're divorced? If your spouse cheats on you? If you cheat on them? If you know you have a child and the child were to, to die or something horrible happened? What do you do in moments like that? And that's why it's important that you not just have a single anchor in your life; that you have multiple anchors. One of the and I'll, I'll stop after this, but one of the big things too for me was. If you've ever seen those hydraulic press videos where they're like, oh, let's put something under a hydraulic press, see how much it can take uh, to, to cut to the end of the story. Um, I saw one where they put a bunch of, like a bowling ball, a tennis ball, these sort of different things. And the one that survived the best was a rubber band ball. And the bowling ball put up a good fight, but eventually exploded. The tennis ball, you know, squished right away. And, you know, it maybe bounced, it came back a little bit at first, but the rubber band ball had to be crushed by this hydraulic press machine like seven times before it really fully came apart. And it, it just, it, it was this perfect, beautiful analogy to me that in our life, we need to have multiple anchors, multiple rubber bands, because if something does, one of these anchors does fail. And you've, and I've seen climbing videos where the guy will fall and boop, 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 some of the anchors pop up, but that last one grabs him. So how many anchors do you have in your life that keep you steady to keep you from falling all the way to the bottom in your life. So, and then in the construction world, I felt like the same sort of analogy applies to building a home, to the sort of person you'd want to build a home with. Um, what sort of values does that, that builder have? Uh, what are their anchors? Um, do, do the winds of inflation or influence them to get a cheaper product and, and give you something that's not what you asked for? Are they, are they anchored in integrity, value, all those sort of things, so. What can we do to support veterans? Um, I think we need to do a better job of keeping them connected with one another, um, doing a better job of following up. I know when I came home from my first deployment, they uh, the demobilization process was sort of like kind of reintegrating you back into regular life. And that, and to be fair, that Kosovo wasn't a high intensity area. I mean, there's still stuff going on, but it was like we came home and within a week we were we were home. Um, they took like a week, just like turn in all your stuff and make sure all the boxes are checked and all the forms are good and like throw you on the bus and we'll see you later. We'll see you drill in two months. And that was it. Now, when I came home from Iraq, they had what they call yellow ribbon ceremonies or or, or uh, yellow ribbon events where you would actually like, let's say you got home one month uh, within two or three weeks, you had to be at this yellow ribbon event with your family. And it was all reintegration stuff. And you didn't do one, you did like two or three or whatever. So um, everyone was like, hey, you know, I've been home for a few weeks now. How's it going? What am I dealing with? What are the struggles I have? Um, and the, the comparison between that and what it used to be, it was night and day. And of course, you hear the stories of guys coming home from like Vietnam and then like getting off of an airplane and just going home and getting spit on by the people at the airport and stuff. It's like there was no transition. Again, it's that 
that uh, ice cold cup with a boiling hot water in it and they just crack and break. And I think veterans that get out need a mission. They need a purpose. They need something. And that's not as viable for some as it is for others. And I know I've, I've even told the guys in my unit, I'm like, hey, if you want me to come and teach some resilience classes, please call me. Like, please, <laughs> like, let me come do that because I want to feel important. I want to feel needed. I want to feel useful. It's a weird thing to to sit back and think that when I was deployed was one of the best times of my life because I felt like I was doing something worth doing, yeah. um, that I was serving a purpose. And when you come home, you're like, now I don't do anything. I go to school again, or I go work at Arby's, or I go build a, you know, a, a wall at a house, you know, it's like, so you don't feel a sense of uh, belonging or, 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 or being intentional in your life. So I think whatever the answer is, it has to be something about almost like if you let a guy out of prison, you have a parole officer that follows up with them, but we don't have anything like that with our veterans. Um, and these people did a lot more, you know, than these, these criminals does it's like, but let's make sure that our veterans yeah. are taken care of, followed up with like, when's my next, my, my next meeting with my VA supervisor. I, I don't have one. I'm done. Right. Um, there's no appointment that I have with anybody in the army. My, my unit, you know, the commander isn't calling me in a few weeks to bring me back in the office and do a, Hey, so how are things going as you transition? It's like, they'll transition you. And then when you're done, you're done. And there's no follow-up, which I, I believe that that is something that would fix a lot of these things. If we had more follow-up care and not just being treated like numbers, but you know, let's get guys from the units uh, that understand the soldiers that maybe knew them um, to to help them transition and be there for six months to a year and beyond. Um, I, I think that would solve, solve a lot of problems. Do you have any goals for the future? Uh, yeah, yeah, lots of goals. Um, you know, I, ironically, um, with this whole idea of, of not having a mission and, and leaving the military, um, I've been struggling to go, well, what is my identity now? You know, you, you join at 18 and you spend 25 years doing something that's like who you are more than you were before. So what is this new identity I'm going to create for myself? Like, I don't even know how to grow a beard yet. I'm like still trying to figure this out. I wouldn't got trimmed up right before I came in. Good. Well, thank you. It's because I had it done professionally. I told the person trimming it. I'm like, I, this is only the second time I've had my beard trimmed. I don't know what I'm doing here. But like for me, my daughter got into skateboarding a couple of years ago um, and she's got pretty good. Um, she's been competing for a series of different reasons uh, within the past, actually within the past week. I'm like, all right. Well, it's probably about two weeks now. I'm like, all right, I'm going to start skateboarding with you. Now I skateboarded a little bit back in like my late teens, early 20s, but not a lot. I wasn't any good, but I've been skateboarding. I'm going to the park with her and with my, I got my, my younger son had been doing it. And he kind of quit. Now he's doing it again. So uh, <laughs> if you want to go to my Instagram page, and look at videos of me falling off skateboards. Uh, there's a few of those on there now. So I'm, I'm learning how to learning how to skateboard. And that's and brave. It's great. I actually just got back from the doctor where, I I think I have a, uh, um, rotator cuff sprain in my right shoulder <laughs> from skateboarding. But, uh, from skateboarding, yeah. Maybe but, you're hey, too you know old what? for this, Ben. <laughs> hey, you know what? That's the phrase you can't say, right? <laughs> but what's cool, at least in this situation, and I know that skateboarding is not for everybody, but having Having a community to be a part of is great. And and I'm really lucky in that the place I go, the park my daughter has been going, 
Um, there's a couple of guys that own some skate companies like skate clothing and pads and stuff companies. And they're old dudes. One of the guys out there that skates is 60. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So it's like, if I'm careful, I, I'm sure I can figure out a way to do this. So um, I have long-term goals as far as like man business and like what I want to try and ways I want to try and help my kids, my marriage, finances, things like that. But as far as things for me and like what I want to do to help influence my kids and be there with my kids, like the skateboarding thing is as silly as it sounds. That's kind of where I am right now. No, that's good. You know what? I spend a lot of time putting together puzzles with my oldest. She loves puzzles. Yeah. So that's the thing that we do. We put together puzzles. And I think it cannot be overlooked how important that relationship is between parents and their kids. And especially something that will extend beyond when the kids leave the home, right? Um, I, I alluded to it earlier. And just to keep it very brief, when I was deployed this, you know, back, back in Iraq, one of the ways that my wife and I did connect because we were so disconnected, um, we were reading books together. Mm. And... Um, <laughs> I, I I have no problems telling people it's it's funny and I think it's silly, but we actually read the Twilight series together. Um, but that's a good husband if you're reading the Twilight series hey, you know, with her. But the, the books are so much better than the movies, don't you think? Uh, they're all dumb, but I still love them. And I know all about their name, you know, you know, okay. I know all about Edward you, and Bella. And the are Volturi you team Edward Ben or team I'm Jacob. team Edward. I'm more of an Edward myself than a Jacob. Okay. But um, it must you know, have been for all both, those nights on deployment. I guess, yeah. But it was funny because we we would we would read them. Actually, we we audio booked them. Uh, that was part of the reason I started listening to these books when I would go to to bed at night. Um, That's funny. At least that was part of it. But um, yeah, it was something that while we were gone for a year, even though we couldn't relate to each other in a lot of ways, we could still talk about, you know, man. Bella is just being so stupid. Why? What does she even see in Edward anymore? You know, or whatever. Um, <laughs> if your funny. kids are leaving the home, it's like they're in college. You're like, oh, I remember what it was like back in my day. It's like whatever old, you know, whatever boomer. But if you have some sort of connection that you guys can stick stick together with, and then this is even with veterans and stuff. Like, I have buddies from high school. I still play online video games with occasionally. It's like at least I have some kind of connection. But yeah, if you can create some sort of connection like that with your children to that that it lasts beyond just the parent-child relationship. Yeah, for years and years, uh, BYU football was the only thing my dad and I would ever really talk about because <laughs> that was like the one thing that that kind of connected us. But, but yeah, so that, that's kind of why I'm doing what I'm doing for now. Where can we find you on social media? Um, so I've got a couple different um, ways you can find me. I have uh, our construction page, which... And you need be... to go look at that because the homes are absolutely spectacular. Yeah, that's the more interesting stuff. <laughs> um, that's anchor underscore custom underscore home. So anchor custom homes. Um, it just, you know, well, it's got this little anchor logo. If you see that pop up in the thumbnail, that's that's that one. Um, there's actually two of them. We have one for our residential and one for our commercial. And um, my personal page is uh, the Gideon. Gideon is like my my screen name in all my video game stuff, but it's uh, the underscore Gideon and then the E and the O or 30. I'm glad so. you told me that, Ben, because I was actually trying to find you on Instagram. And so now I know why I haven't been able to find you. So now I know. There you go. If you can see that, uh, let's see here. That's what it looks like on the oh, screen. Yeah. Okay. But I will know then. So the I more recent you. photo is my, my son in his Freddy Fazbear oh. costume on the skateboard ramp. Did you go um, with him to see that? 
I, I didn't. His grandma took him actually last night. Um, but I helped build the Freddy Fazbear costume, which would not recommend. We didn't decorate our house this year because we spent the last two weeks decorating uh, or trying to build a cosplay costume for a for a nine year old. You got to do what's which, important. Got to do what's yeah, important. Priorities. Yeah, and he'll have yeah, he'll have those memories forever. And at least the pictures last a while. In fact, they still right. got to clean up. There's like foam and stuff all over on the other side of the living room. Ben, what does America mean to you? Um, for me, it means opportunity, sacrifice, um, freedom, and really the the ability to create the kind of life you want. And I know there's a lot of cynics out there that will that will argue a lot of, of those points. But I've been overseas. You know, I've seen other countries. I've seen uh, what's out there, and you know, I went to school and I read my history books, and I've uh, I understand what what's come before us and. I know America's not perfect. Um, no country is. We've all got our flaws, but I believe that, you know, in that that metaphorical sense, we stand on the shoulders of giants. A lot of people have sacrificed a lot to to give us the country that we live in and the country that a lot of us take for granted. And and um despite the um the flaws in you know our, our government and and you know some of the people serving in it. Ultimately, I believe the the anchors, if you are the values that this country is built on, are, are true. Uh, I believe in them as much as I believe in anything in my life, and um, I know me and countless others were willing to put the uniform on and and live and die for those values if need be. So uh, that's what America means to me. And before we sign off, Ben, I almost forgot. Will you please share with us about that poster that you had that sparked my attention? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it was for a good friend of mine named Jason Kendall. Um, he has brain cancer and he's a gentleman that I served with uh, in, in the 19th special forces group for a number of years. Um, and it was a GoFundMe to try and help take care of uh, the, him, his family, and, you know, kind of make sure that uh, if this goes the way that, you know, that they fear that it's going to go, that his family is taken care of afterwards. And, yeah, so it was about trying to take care of Jason, and it was you know me and him serving together. We served together in Iraq, and then just within the unit for a number of years. Is that GoFundMe page still up? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm still getting the we the the email update, so I'm sure I can I can send you the information on that if you want to include it in the information about the podcast. That is great. Thank you, Ben, for sharing your American story with us. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, and thanks for letting me ramble on a bit too long. Thank you for listening to this episode of Another Fellow Patriot. Be sure to check the show notes for links to this week's guest. For more connection to the podcast, visit www.wethepeopleouramericanstory.com. And finally, be a voice, a strong voice, a voice for freedom. As Benjamin Franklin so eloquently stated, where liberty dwells, there is my country.